welcome back to our new podcast series on biodiversity net gain. I'm Fiona Sawyer, a professional support lawyer in the Herbert Smith Freehills London planning team, and I'm here with Martin Jarvis, a senior associate in our team. In this series of three episodes, we're discussing how the government proposes to implement the principle of biodiversity net gain for development. We've prepared a client briefing to accompany this series, so please get in touch using the contact details on the podcast homepage if you're interested in receiving a copy. The embedding of environmental net gain is a headline of the government's 25-year plan to improve the environment. The principles for biodiversity gain in planning have been clearly set out in the Environment Bill. Although the bill will not now return to Parliament until autumn at the earliest, there is little doubt that the planning system will soon incorporate a requirement for biodiversity net gain to ensure the protection and promotion of biodiversity alongside the revival of the government's plans for major increases in house building and the infrastructure revolution to support it. In episode one of this series, we considered what the proposals for biodiversity gain in planning require. In the rest of this series, we will take a brief look at the ways in which a development may achieve the biodiversity gain objective, and how the net gain requirement ties in with an important green infrastructure policy in the emerging New London plan, namely urban greening. Today, we are discussing the ways in which a development can achieve the biodiversity gain objective. Hello again, Martin. Hello. So, developers will want to know what the practical implications are of the biodiversity gain requirements, Where's the best place to start? So as we discussed last time, new planning permissions will sometime soon be deemed to be granted subject to a planning condition to secure that the biodiversity gain objective is met. So before a development can commence, a biodiversity gain plan must be submitted to the local planning authority and the planning authority must approve the plan. The biodiversity gain plan must include information about the steps taken or to be taken to minimise the adverse effects of the development on biodiversity, the pre-development biodiversity value of the site, the post-development biodiversity value of the site, any registered off-site gains allocated to that development and their value, and any biodiversity credits purchased for the development. And the local planning authority can only approve the plan if it is satisfied that the content of the plan is correct and that the biodiversity gain objective is met. And the biodiversity gain objective is met if the biodiversity value attributable to the development following completion exceeds the pre-development biodiversity value of the on-site habitat by at least currently 10%. A developer will therefore need to be mindful of how they will be able to satisfy this requirement and discharge this pre-commencement condition from the outset To not consider this when designing and refining proposals for development would likely cause difficulties, as seeking to retrofit biodiversity value into a development will prove more difficult than incorporating it at an early stage for a myriad of reasons, and may leave no option but to pay to satisfy the condition. So I can see why this needs to be considered up front to ensure that the development can meet the net gain requirements before permission is applied for. You said that pre- and post-development biodiversity values are necessary for working out whether the biodiversity gain objective is met. How are these values calculated? Biodiversity value must be calculated in accordance with a biodiversity metric, uh, which will be consulted on and published by the Secretary of State. The metric is currently undergoing refinement, with Natural England stating that they aim to publish the final version of the metric in December 2020, 
and whether a completed development will exceed the pre-development biodiversity value on site by at least 10% will be calculated by taking into account pre-development value of the site, post-development value of the site, any registered off-site biodiversity gains and any purchased biodiversity credits. Taking each of these in turn, let's look first at the on-site pre-development biodiversity value. And essentially, this is the baseline from which compliance with the biodiversity gain objective will be measured. So the on-site pre-development biodiversity value is the biodiversity value of the habitat at the development site before the impact of the development is taken into consideration. The on-site pre-development biodiversity value must be calculated as at the relevant date, which will generally be the date of the related planning application being submitted, although two important exceptions do apply in this regard. Firstly, existing value cannot be reduced by unauthorised activities. Unauthorised activities that are carried on or after the 30th of January 2020 and that reduce on-site biodiversity value will be discounted and the pre-development biodiversity value must be measured from the date immediately before the unauthorised activities were carried out. So essentially, this is looking to ensure that someone doesn't have a site, carry out a lot of works to lower its biodiversity value significantly so that they can then more easily achieve the 10% gain. Secondly, there can be no double counting in relation to sites which are registered as biodiversity gain sites. So for the development of land which is on a biodiversity gain site register, which I'll discuss later, enhancements registered to another development must be discounted. It's all about the value a particular development can take from a gain site in that respect. Okay, thank you very much, Martin. So how about post-development biodiversity value? Uh, So this is where it gets complicated if it wasn't already. Um, There are several elements to the calculation of post-development biodiversity value. The starting point is to consider what the biodiversity value will be on-site after the development has been carried out. Now, should the biodiversity value on-site after the development has been completed be 10% more than the biodiversity value before the development was carried out, nothing further will be required to satisfy the condition. However, it's important to understand that for increases to on-site biodiversity value to be taken into account, any habitat enhancement resulting from the development must be required to be maintained for a period of at least 30 years after the development is completed. The requirement for maintenance for a period of 30 years may be secured through a planning condition, a planning obligation under Section 106 agreement, or a conservation covenant. Planning conditions and planning obligations will no doubt be more familiar to listeners. However, conservation covenants are being introduced by the Environment Bill and therefore are less likely so. In short, for planning purposes, a conservation covenant is a covenant contained in an agreement between a landowner and a responsible body where the agreement requires a landowner to do or not to do something on land owned by the landowner or allows or requires a responsible body to do something on that land. The agreement must have a conservation purpose, which is discussed in the Environment Bill, and the agreement is intended by the parties to be for the public good. Our real estate team can provide further information on conservation covenants for listeners who are interested. Thank you very much, Martin. So that covers calculating on-site biodiversity, both pre- and post-development. What about off-site gains and biodiversity credits? How are they taken into account when calculating the post-development biodiversity of a development? 
So if we start with registered off-site biodiversity gains, and to understand how this works, we need to discuss what biodiversity gain sites are. So biodiversity gain site is land where a person is required under a conservation covenant or a planning obligation to carry out works for the purpose of habitat enhancement. That or another person is required to maintain the enhancement for at least 30 years after the completion of those works. And the enhancement is to be made available to be allocated in accordance with the terms of the covenant or obligation to one or more developments for which planning permission is granted. The particular conservation covenant or planning obligation, which in effect creates the biodiversity gain site, will determine which developments a biodiversity gain site may be allocated to. The Environment Bill provides that the Secretary of State may make regulations for a register of biodiversity gain sites. There isn't a lot more known at this point of time in that regard, but it would be expected that the responsible bodies involved in entering into those covenants and obligations would be required to notify of them and then arrange for them to be registered on that register. So in essence, a biodiversity gain site allows for enhancements to be provided on land off-site, which can be used to offset on-site losses or to increase the on-site gains achieved so as to meet the biodiversity gain objective. The identification of biodiversity gain sites and also their allocation to particular developments will be critical for the benefit of them to be realised. There is clearly a potential mutual benefit for the parties involved in that allocation, being the owner of the land which provides the enhancements and the developer who wants to take advantage of it, and there will also be the need for the responsible authority to be content with that allocation. Ensuring a biodiversity gain site is properly able to be allocated to a particular development will likely be complex and will require, I think, significant future planning. There is also going to need to be some strategic thinking about the allocation of biodiversity gain sites if they are to play a real beneficial role in the delivery of increased habitat value and also to unlock development. This will be the case for developers, but this will also be the case for local authorities. How potential biodiversity gain sites and their expected costs are identified at the plan making stage will be of importance should local authorities wish to meet the government's ambitious housing targets and assist developers in ensuring the biodiversity gain condition does not stifle major development in an era of what has been promised to be build, build, build. Thank you very much, Martin. There's a lot to think about there. So we just need to talk about biodiversity credits now, I think. So having addressed how both on-site and off-site habitat enhancements may be taken into account for the purpose of determining whether the biodiversity gain objective is met, the last way in which biodiversity value may be attributable to a development is by the purchase of biodiversity credits in relation to it. Where a development cannot achieve the biodiversity gain objective on-site and there is not a biodiversity gain site able to be allocated to that development, a developer will have no option but to purchase biodiversity credits to achieve the biodiversity gain objective and discharge the biodiversity gain condition, allowing the development to commence. The detail with regards to biodiversity credits remains to be seen, as the Secretary of State has been given the power to make arrangements for the purchase of such credits from the Secretary of State in the Environment Bill, but there is no more information on this as yet. The value of biodiversity credits and the cost for them relevant to that value is not yet known in any form, though it is required that in setting the price for these, the Secretary of State must have regard to the need to determine an amount which does not discourage the registration of land in the biodiversity gain sites register. So essentially not to set the price so it's cheaper to purchase biodiversity credits 
than it is to secure habitat enhancements on a biodiversity gain site. Given the likely importance of biodiversity credits and unlocking developments deemed to be subject to the biodiversity gain condition, the detail of their value, the cost attributable to that value, and more so their availability to be purchased will be of importance for the developers. How the government then uses the monies received from the purchase of biodiversity credits to deliver habitat enhancements that they have been purchased in relation to will be of much greater importance for the environment and whether the government's aims of achieving biodiversity net gain will be realised. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. We've reached the end of this podcast. In this and the previous podcast, we've talked about the requirements for biodiversity gain in planning and the ways in which a development can achieve the biodiversity gain objective. In the next podcast, we'll discuss the overlaps between the biodiversity gain objective and the urban greening policies contained in the emerging New London Plan. If you're interested in receiving a copy of the client briefing we've prepared to accompany this series, please get in touch using the contact details on the podcast homepage. And please also get in touch if you've got any questions on this podcast or any others in the series. Please note that these podcasts are intended to provide a general overview of our thoughts on how the government proposes to implement the principle of biodiversity net gain. We've tried to ensure that the information we've presented is accurate at the time of recording, but the law can change quickly and a general overview can't account for the many different factors that can affect individual circumstances. So please seek independent legal or professional advice. Thank you for listening.